This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jai Paul Valenza. And I'm Dave D. Boat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Topps Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. Good morning, this is Dave Debo. Coming up on the program today, Jay Moran will be here a little bit later talking with Harper Bishop, an activist in the community. Uh, As always, we're looking at what happens uh, now after the shooting and what can be done about it. But there is also a major news event we must discuss related to this entire case. And by case, I mean just that, the court proceedings. Yesterday, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland appeared in Buffalo to personally announce charges against Peyton Gendron. Under a federal criminal complaint, Gendron now is charged with 10 counts of a hate crime resulting in death, three counts of a hate crime involving bodily injury and attempt to kill, 10 counts of a use of firearm to commit murder during and in relation to a violent crime, and three counts of discharge of a firearm during and in relation to a violent crime. Total there, if you were counting and adding together, that's 26 charges. And let's break them down a little bit. This is a case, obviously where we want to get some reaction from the community, and we will continue to do that. But I think it's also important to understand the process. So with that in mind, we've brought in Tony Bruce, a former assistant U.S. attorney with 38 years' experience in that position, someone who uh, (laughs) you even came, Tony, to the studio with what you call the Bible, a look at the law. The law is right in front of me here, about three or four inches thick. Let's discuss all of this. But first, I think it would be good to hear just a little bit more from U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. Hate-fueled acts of violence terrorize not only the individuals who are all attacked, but entire communities. Hate brings immediate devastation and it inflicts lasting fear. At the Justice Department, we view confronting hate crimes as both our legal and our moral obligation. The Justice Department was founded more than 150 years ago with the first principal task of protecting black Americans and our democracy from white supremacist violence. Today, we approach that task with the same degree of urgency as we did then. We fully recognize the threat that hatred and violent extremism pose to the safety of the American people and American democracy. We will be relentless in our efforts to combat hate crimes, to support the communities terrorized by them, and to hold accountable those who perpetrate them. No one in this country should have to live in fear that they will go to work or shop at a grocery store and will be attacked by someone who hates them because of the color of their skin. Tony Bruce, let's analyze that a little bit. Uh, To what degree is this case different 
because of the hate crime element. Does that make it harder to prosecute, easier to prosecute, or just different to prosecute? I think just different to prosecute. Um, evidence is evidence. Uh, crimes are crimes. The approach to them, you need to prove elements of a crime when you get into the courtroom. Uh, the elements of the crime are laid out in the statute, and the prosecutors will, I'm sure, prove relentless in proving those elements when they get to trial. But it's no different than a bank robbery or a drug case or something like that when looked at just as a, as a case. But a bank robbery or a drug case wouldn't necessarily involve, neither does this, but wouldn't necessarily involve at least the potential of the death penalty. This has that at least on the table maybe as a possibility. Absolutely. Explain that. Well, um, the... The federal criminal code has had the death penalty in it for a very, very long time, and it's very specific as to statutes. In this case, uh, Mr. Gendron is eligible for the death penalty because he used a firearm in the course of committing another violent crime, and the other violent crime being the hate crimes that he's charged with. Um, it, it, it's sort of a, a convoluted theory, but that's how the hate, that's how the uh, death penalty gets on the table. So the hate crime is just, I hate to say it this way, but just another violent crime. And because he used a firearm in the commission of just another violent crime, that's why it is death penalty eligible. Yes. A little technical, but that's how they get there. Explain that. Death penalty eligible. It could be death penalty. It doesn't have to be death penalty. How do they, the prosecutors, figure that out? Well, the de whether or not the death penalty will be will be used or whether or not there will be a request to use it, and we can get to that in a few minutes, is, is a statutory creature. Um, you have to look at the facts and circumstances of every case. If, if a particular case merits the death penalty, then there's a process. If a particular case doesn't merit the death penalty, um, then the process isn't used. U.S. Department of Justice came to town. Merrick Garland came to town, the top man. Uh, a lot of the announcements that they made, and, and we'll hear some more of that as the program goes on here, uh, was specifically about the commitment that Maine justice has to stopping hate crimes. If they're out in front on this so publicly saying hate crimes cannot be tolerated, do they then therefore have to go with death penalty as, as a means of saying this is serious stuff? Well, you need to define have to, but in a situation where you have 10 people or 21 people, things of that nature, I think it has to be on the table. And in my personal opinion, I think those are very, very appropriate cases for the death penalty to be used. All right. Um, at the same time, let's bring in, and, and, and if you don't want to be completely, if you want to be completely apolitical, let me know. But uh, let's bring in some of the political considerations. President Biden has talked about not being a fan of the death penalty. Well, you cannot be a fan of the death penalty. In other words, there could be knee-jerk reaction death penalty cases, and there can be cases where the death penalty is truly implicated. Um, and I, and I, if he doesn't want to be a fan of it in a, in a simple case where there's a, a murder committed during the course of a federal bank robbery, that's one thing. This is a whole different case, at least in my view. Okay. When they initially turned the scene back over from the FBI to the neighborhood into Tops. Uh, the head of the local FBI office uh, held a news conference there and spoke of how um, the entire might of the FBI was on that scene. The idea that they have evidence gathering techniques that, that other agencies don't. The idea that they had personnel there 
uh, massive amount of effort spent on this particular case that other agencies don't. Can we therefore assume that the evidence that they've gathered is large? And uh, I don't want to suppose too much here, but that, that this case is therefore a slam dunk. From, from the view of a prosecutor, I see this case as a case that will take a long time to prove in case, prove in court, I should say. But I also see it as a case that is easily proven in course, court over that long period of time. The evidence against Mr. Gendron is, in my view, overwhelming. Really? Okay. On all of the charges, enough that they will, in your opinion, is it one for all? If they get one of the charges, will they get them all? Is there enough evidence for all of that? Or do you see a scenario where some of these things he's charged with could be guilty and some perhaps not? No. All of these all of these charges are out of one course of conduct. Um, they've been broken down by victim. Um, if you notice, every one of these charges relates to a particular victim. Um, so the evidence with respect to one victim, it only changes in that they use different rounds of ammunition to kill a second victim. So I would think this would be an all-or-nothing type of situation. So you think it's a strong case? I do. Okay. How long will it take? Several weeks. Okay. Several weeks. And during that time, all eyes will be on Buffalo. Uh, they have to be. They have to be. Will there be a request for a change of venue? Will there be a situation where they say, this case has been so so discussed that there is no way we could get an impartial jury out of the pool in western New York? I don't think so. Um, western New York, the, the actual judicial district is, is 17 counties. Juries are drawn from the westernmost seven of those counties, I believe it is. Um, they can certainly, using questionnaires and using large numbers of people in the jury pool, come up with 16 or 18 jurors, including the alternates, um, that can hear this case and who will essentially say, yes, I'm aware of the case, but I don't know anything about the case, and I don't know if this guy is guilty or innocent. So you don't picture it moving out of town? I don't. Really? What sort of a job does the defense have right now? Because I, I'm not the attorney. Uh, I didn't work 38 years in the job that you had. I would have pictured that being the first arrow in the attorney's quiver. Hey, let's move this thing to a place where we'll get a more sympathetic jury. Well, even if that was a tack they were going to take, that's a tack they can't take at this point in time. The case has to be indicted. The case There has to be pretrial litigation in the case. Um, they have to go through all of those things. And, and at that point in time... Um, they can make a motion for a change in venue. But making a motion for a change in venue is heavy lifting mm. part of the defense. What options do the, does the defense have? Is there any way they can... Uh, there are all sorts of allegations that this was streamed live on Twitch. Is there any sort of way they can say, hey, that's not him? Is, is that a defense? I wouldn't think so. I mean, this defendant wrote a screed which was, and I don't remember exactly, but something like 160 or 170 pages in length, where he says, I'm going to do this. Mm. He goes to the store. He does it. He's arrested walking out of the store um, with the guns uh, in his hand. That's why I say this is a very, very strong case. There's is to be very difficult for him to be acquitted in this case. And identification is not an issue. They don't have to. Uh, they can readily prove that, that this is the guy. Well, identification is always technically an issue. But in this case... 
is he's walking out of the store with a gun in his hand and he's got all sorts of tactical gear on and he's written all this sort of stuff. Uh, identification will not be an issue in this case. We're talking with Anthony Bruce, Tony Bruce. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for Western New York, spent 38 years there. I also, as we've said, this, this program likes to uh, bring in the voices of the community. We also have with us Mark Talley here. You've heard Mark on the program before. He lost his mother in the shootings. Mark, before we bring you into the conversation, I'd like to uh, listen to one of the things that was said at the news conference yesterday. Kristen Clark is the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Justice. Today, I join my colleagues in grieving the innocent victims of this senseless crime and expressing my condolences to their families and the Buffalo community that has suffered through this traumatic event. I grieve with you as a New Yorker, as a black woman, and as Chief Federal Law Enforcement Officer for Civil Rights at the Department of Justice. Every day we see evidence that racially motivated hate crimes are on the rise across our country. According to the FBI's most recent data, most victims of racially motivated hate crimes are black. These acts of hate are a stain on our democracy and have no place in our society. Let me be clear, the Civil Rights Division and the entire Justice Department will not stand by idly in the fight against white supremacist-fueled violence. As Attorney General Garland noted, we will pursue the perpetrators of hate crimes and hold them accountable. And we will be vigilant in our quest to secure justice for the victims and their families. Prosecutions alone will not stop the spread of hate. That's why the Justice Department is also hard at work addressing non-criminal acts of bias that rear their ugly head inside our schools, workplaces, and our neighborhoods. We're also addressing the need for hate crime prevention through education and awareness. This multi-part strategy is critical to eliminating hate, root, and branch. Today, we charge this defendant with violating the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, alleging he murdered 10 innocent people and attempted to murder three others with a firearm because he wanted to kill and injure black people. A core mission of the Civil Rights Division is the fight against the scourge of hate crimes, to prevent them, prosecute them, and remedy the harms they cause to communities. That is our duty, and we intend to fulfill it. That's Kristen Clark, the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights in the entire U.S. Justice Department, coming in from Washington yesterday to announce these charges. Mark Talley. Thanks for joining us. What, do you, what are your thoughts? You hear that. You lost your mom. Is this enough? Uh, so right now, I feel this is just the beginning stages. I mean, I understand it's a legal process, and they just have to go through all their due diligence. But as of right now, to me, it's looking like that process is on the way. And that obviously for you is a good thing. But it sounds like you're saying just a tiny first step, tiny first step. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Noah here, if I was the attorney general, luckily for a lot of criminals, that's a good thing. But if I were, I mean, you already had the video evidence. Like he purposely recorded himself doing this. 
even uh, even more verified that this was a hate crime by putting uh, here are your reparations on a semi-automatic weapon, live uh, live streamed it on Twitch, put all his manifesto materials on 4chan. So, I mean, the attorney general definitely has a lot of great evidence to go by. That's some of what Tony was saying earlier, that 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 uh, in terms of the the things that they have gathered, they've got a lot here. Absolutely. I mean, I keep saying it's an overwhelming case against him. And I don't think I don't think he went into this and committed this crime with the idea of getting away with it. I think he just went into it to do it, to make his crazy statement. Does that change anything for you mark that uh, that his intent obviously here if he's the one that did this they're ready to prove that his intent was to kill black people what does it say to you mark that the highest levels of the US Department of Justice are onto that looking at that concerned about that is it enough is it lip service in light of I don't know past prosecutions are you are you embracing it because of its role in this particular case or is it I don't know um, something that forgive me politicians have to do I mean just like you just said it's something that politicians have to do I mean I don't think you have to be at the highest level of politics and law to realize that this was a hate crime I mean I'm confident that a fourth grader learning learning social studies history right now just given all the facts they could tell yeah this is a hate crime like, he purposely did this, purposely planned it out, scouted, wrote about it, twitched about it, live-streamed it. He even said what he wanted to do. So it doesn't take a lot for anybody to, to tell, no, this is a hate crime. This is a, a prosecution that could result, could maybe, possibly result in the death penalty. How do you feel about that, Mark? I'll be perfectly okay with it. I had a hunch you would say that. I mean, normally in certain situations... I believe prison, uh, criminals, they should just stay in prison. But at this point, I mean, there'd be no point for him to. Like he, once is found guilty, I mean, he's gonna be in protective custody the rest of his life. He'll never be in general population. He'll never see the sun again. And even if he doesn't see the sun again, to me, he'll still be alive, which is still way too much for everything that he did. All right. Talk to me, Tony, about uh, the, the specifics that were cited there by uh, Associate Attorney General Kristen Clark. The Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, alleging that he murdered these 10 people and attempted to murder three others with a firearm because he wanted to kill and injure black people. Statutorily, is that last part crucial? In order for it to be a hate crime, must he have targeted people because of race, color, creed, that kind of thing? That's part of the statute. That's an element that the prosecutors prosecuting this case will have to prove. Although, as I've said before, proving it from what he's written, proving it from what was engraved on the gun, it, it is not an overarching problem. Okay. Means, motive, I, I'm trying to think of all the detective movies I've watched. Means, motive, and opportunity, are those the three things they, they really have to address here? <laughs> this is a, actually, and I know the real world is not yeah. CSI, but actually, go ahead. Actually, this is a simpler case than that. They have to show that he planned and executed this crime, these crimes, with the idea of killing black people. It was killing for killing's purposes. And they have to march through all of that. And then to prove the firearms crimes, they obviously have to show that he used a firearm. 
but that's as obvious as the nose on your face. I don't want to drag you into any more of a political discussion than you're willing to get into, but do they almost have to do this? I, I, I can. Could they have just gone with the state charges and let it be prosecuted by John Flynn, Erie County District Attorney? Did the feds have to be involved, or would it have made more sense to kind of keep that in the back pocket as a insurance card or a a, a, a parachute for later? Well, I don't want to speak for the—I can't speak for the U.S. Attorney's Office. I can't speak for the District Attorney's Office. I don't know what went back and forth between them in terms of discussing this case and determining where it was going. Um, a murder on the street of Buffalo is a horrible thing. It is not a national issue. A murder of 10 people because they're, because of their skin color in a grocery store in Buffalo is a national issue. It has to be taken up by the Department of Justice. Could they have let the U.S. Attorney, or the District Attorney's Office take the case? Absolutely. Uh, but I think what was done in this case is highly appropriate. And as a point of law, they, it's not an either-or proposition. Uh, the filing of these federal charges doesn't mean the state ones disappear. That's true. Okay. He could be tried in both places. How do you picture that uh, playing out? First one, then the other? It would have to be, so they're not running at the same time, feds first? I don't know. And again, I'd have to be privy to the conversations between John Flynn and Trini Ross to, to give you the answer to that question. I'm not. Um, there are some state double jeopardy statutes, which I don't really think apply in this case, but certainly have to be considered in the run-up trial in this case. And by double jeopardy, you mean can't be charged with the same crime more than once? Correct. The state has... A, the, there's something out there, and I don't want to be too technical, but there's something out there called um, the, the dual sovereignty rule, which means if a crime is a crime against one sovereign and a crime against the second sovereign, in this case, the state of New York and the federal government, it can be prosecuted in both places. But the state has taken upon itself to enact uh, a, a double jeopardy statute, which says basically if the feds prosecute the same crime, and that's an important phrase, the feds prosecute the same crime... And there's a resolution of it, whether it's an acquittal or a conviction, it can't come back in state court. The crimes here, the, the, the elements of the crimes here in federal court and state court, are there's very little overlap. So I don't see the state double jeopardy statute kicking in, but it has to be a consideration. So they've mapped this out in advance. They have to. They right. have to have. Yeah. All right. Tony Bruce is here. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney, 38 years in that position. Mark Talley is also here. Mark lost his mother, Geraldine, in the shootings. He's been pretty vocal talking about it and some of the things going on in the community. It's been over a month now, Mark. How, how are you seeing things? Um, is the community starting, perhaps, to heal? Oh, yes, you have a lot of community organizations. They're definitely trying to reach out, help out on the streets of uh, Jefferson Avenue. Uh, we just had a memorial service with uh, the uh, mayor, Byron Brown. Um, got to meet the uh, the personnel, the um, first responders who arrived here on the scene, who was able to stop more people from getting murdered. So, yeah, it was definitely an emotional time right there. Do you think the the response that I've seen in the community... Um, at some of the memorial services, uh, with some of those signs that are out in, uh, in the community, the lawn signs, uh, with the checkboxes. One of them says prayers checked, thoughts checked, action, the, the, the last box isn't checked. Do you think we're at the point where 
action is now starting to spring up other than just relief for the community, other than just community grieving and or anger? I believe the action box will finally be checked once he's in prison and once the judgment comes down. Okay. But what about community action? Is there things that bubble out of this that will result in less racism, a less segregated community, more investment on the east side? Uh, well, my personal beliefs, um, there will always be racism in the world. But uh, what we're seeing now in, uh, in Buffalo with all the community groups, yeah, everybody's definitely trying to help each other out. They understand this was a traumatic time. Nobody expects a terrorist attack to happen in their city. So it's kind of there's there's no plan on how to grieve afterwards, how to deal with this and what to do. So as of right now, what everybody's doing is just trying to help help each other out to the best that we can. And it's definitely, definitely going great. And I want to go back to what you said, that, that for you, the action action box gets checked with this successful prosecution. Yes, once the successful prosecution happens, once he gets sentenced to either life in prison or the death penalty, once again, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't even know if New York State has it, but once once either, either of those two happen, that's when the action box will be checked. Yeah, New York State does not, but the feds do, which is part of why we're looking at these fed charges. Um, Mark used the word, Anthony, uh, Tony, uh, Mark used the word terrorist, and I know that that's part of the state charges under the new uh, law. Um, is that in any way a factor on the federal side of things? It is not. This is un under the federal statutes. He went after and killed these people because of the color of their skin. And and that's more than enough to bring him under the federal hate crime statute. So many of the discussion, so much of the discussion yesterday from Justice Department officials talked about the history of the Justice Department in combating hate. Uh, its roots, in fact, they said, were basically springing out of anti-Klan efforts. Um, talk a little bit, if you can, and again, I, I don't want to pull you into political debate, but talk, to, if you can, about um, the success. Is the Justice Department good and successful at prosecuting hate crimes? Are there other things that Washington should be doing that maybe they haven't been able to? Well, I, I think the Department of Justice has been very successful in prosecuting hate crimes. We go back into the, and, and I'm kind of pulling out of the back of my brain here, but there were the murders in Mississippi and Alabama that went unprosecuted for years that the Department of Justice was able to kind of pull up and prosecute 25 years later. I look at those and I just marvel at those types of prosecutions. Um, so in, in terms of success against hate crimes, I... I I don't think there's a, a better organization out there to do it. My question is, what do we do during for, going forward? Can we stop this stuff before it happens? And that's the big question in my mind. Is there a, a, a bad history that the Justice Department has to erase? Uh, obviously, the outlook of President Biden is different from the outlook of President Trump. Is, is that kind of politics in any way a factor in these kind of things? Or are you able to say, no, justice, regardless of what administration, justice is not political? Well, I don't want to go into criticizing the Trump administration, but I don't think they did a very good job in terms of, uh, of race relations and, and things of that nature. I think that the Biden administration is doing a better job. It's just a shame that they get forced into doing a better job by having 10 bodies in Buffalo and 21 bodies in Uvalde, Texas, and things of that nature. Mark, jump on in. Uh, once again, 
I have no no type of legal knowledge, but uh, in my opinion, do it does look like a different different tactics and different response to things of uh, racial disproportions per administration. I mean, we're still talking about the the, um, the Capitol riots. Mm. And that happened, what, close to two years ago, mm-hmm. I believe. And we're having to basically still deal with this. This should have easily been solved by now. In fact, I'll put a quick plug in here. Later this afternoon, we will be carrying those Capitol hearings live here on WBFO. This is Buffalo What's Next. Anthony, Tony Bruce is here. He keeps correcting me. He says, call me Tony. Tony Bruce is here, the former U.S. assistant attorney. Mark Talley is here. He lost his mother, Geraldine, in the top shooting. As we close here, I did want to just take a moment and listen to another one of the officials that spoke yesterday at the uh, news conference announcing these charges. To recap briefly, there are 26 new charges out there against Peyton Gendron. Many of them hate crimes. It could be a possible involvement of the death penalty. Uh, He's charged with 10 counts of a hate crime resulting in death, three counts of a hate crime involving bodily injury and attempt to kill, 10 counts of a use of firearm to commit murder during and in relation to a violent crime, and three counts of discharge of a firearm during and in relation to a violent crime. Anthony, earlier you said that uh, it's the connection between those two. The hate crime is a violent crime. You use a firearm during a violent crime, and that could trigger the federal death penalty. Let's listen for a moment now to uh, Associate U.S. Attorney General Vanita Gupta. It is tragic that we are standing here in the aftermath of such a horrifying act of violence, and we grieve with the families who lost loved ones and for this whole community. Hate crimes are insidious. They instill fear across entire communities, and they undermine the principles upon which our democracy stands. No person and no community should ever have to experience this. As the Attorney General mentioned, around the time that the Justice Department was founded, the Ku Klux Klan was carrying out a reign of terror against black Americans. More than 150 years later, white supremacists are still terrorizing black Americans and other communities of color, and the Justice Department will not tolerate it. The Justice Department's top priority is holding accountable those who commit these heinous acts. But we must all continue to combat hate and discrimination in all of its forms and address them before they ever escalate to violence. Every community deserves to feel safe and protected. Associate U.S. Attorney Vanita Gupta in Buffalo yesterday announcing these charges. Mark, react to that a little bit. Um, The idea that every community needs to feel safe and protected, she said, obviously. Um, That the Justice Department's history is in fighting white supremacy. Are they doing enough overall, broadly? And I'm, I'm talking maybe even more than just this particular case. Would you like to see government, federal government, do more? And if so, what could they do? I would definitely love to see them do more. But at the same time, uh, the Justice Department isn't keeping up with the efficiency of racism um, from the past. Like back in the 60s and prior, you knew who was racist. I mean, they put the white flags over their head put the cross on your yard, called you racial evidence uh, daily. But now here in 2022, um, racism is getting a lot more efficient. Like you don't know who's racist now. Like uh, they try to hide behind, you know, just different cold words. Like, it's, it's almost as if it's more covert now until someone grabs a gun and does something horrific. Exactly. From a law enforcement perspective, Tony, does that create problems? 
when when there were people burning crosses, you could prosecute them for burning crosses, right? Correct. Has it reached a point now where you kind of have to wait till someone grabs a gun and shoots up a top supermarket? I don't think so. All right. I, I think that law enforcement has to be more proactive in terms of seeking out white supremacist groups, uh, anti-Semitic groups, any of those groups. They have to they have to seek them out. They have to develop an intelligence base, which conflicts with kind of our American way of life. But what are we willing to put up with and, and has to be proactive in those areas? Being reactive is is not the answer. There are going to be reactive situations. This is not going to be this nor the, the situation in Texas are not going to be the last mass shootings. But it's a shame that we have to be reactive as a term to, as in as opposed to proactive. What kind of proactive measures can we take? There's obviously some some civil rights issues there. Surveillance is not always necessarily allowed. How how do you picture this this uh, prevention unfolding? I look at, directly at the FBI. They have to get informants. They have to infiltrate these groups. They have to do a lot of intelligence base building in terms of finding these groups, and then they have to keep an eye on them. But the, the flip side of that is, although the FBI is very large in terms of agents, do they have enough to do all that? Mm -hmm. I don't know. So then wouldn't it be a matter of selecting priorities? Absolutely. And is hate crimes in your book? And, and, and if not, feel free to tell me, because I, I mean, there was a time once, obviously, where the FBI was responsible for and really concentrating on bank robberies. They don't do that as much anymore. Um, after 9-11, I think the focus shifted probably to terrorism. Do they need to have an all-out full court press priority number one hate crime? I think it's already partially underway, but I think what is in there, and, and I don't I don't profess to know a lot about it. Yeah, but no, I think but you're a guy who, again, 38 years right. as an assistant U.S. attorney, um, you got background. Well, you, you had two shootings within, what, 10 days of each other? Mm-hmm. You have to ramp it up in terms of intelligence gathering. There was uh, this past weekend or, or in recent weeks uh, a situation in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where a group called Patriot Front rented a U-Haul, filled it with militia members, drove it toward a pride uh, parade, and were stopped, arrested by uh, feds, allegedly because there was an informant in that group that said, hey, they're, they're planning bad stuff here. Um, that, I would think, is an example that they are out there doing this. Are you saying that they are not doing enough? Well, let me correct you on something there. The arrest in Idaho was done yeah, by, by Idaho authorities. It wasn't done Oh, by it was not authorities. feds. Okay. But the federal government, the FBI, has gotten in on that. Idaho only had the authority to charge these people with misdemeanors. There are federal riot statutes crossing a state line and so on and so forth that would net these guys up to 20 years in prison if they are charged. I fully expect that case to be charged in federal court. Oh, okay. So it'll get bucked up just in the same way as this one did. It, it, well, this case wasn't bumped up so much. That case will be bumped up because we'll go from misdemeanors to a 20-year felony. All right. Very good. Tony Bruce, thanks for being here. Any closing comments? Anything you want to leave the audience with as to how this thing unfolds? It'll be interesting to see how it unfolds, um, where the case will be prosecuted first. It'll be interesting to see if the Department of Justice gives its go-ahead with respect to the death penalty, which is of utmost importance at this point. When will we know that? How will we know that? That'll come out 
as part of the prosecution in court at some point? Or will we wait until there's a verdict and then they say, oh, here's a sentencing recommendation, kill him? No. Um, what will happen is at some point, and if it's not already underway, I'd be surprised, the U.S. Attorney's Office here will put together a package that they will send to a death penalty unit in Washington seeking authority to charge this guy or to seek to seek the death penalty against him. Um, that'll be vetted by that by, the, by that office in Washington that will then go to the attorney general and he'll say yes or he'll say no. Um, the court will be notified, if it hasn't already been, will be notified that that's in progress. And then it will go, it will go silent for a good period of time because it will be part of a bureaucratic consideration. At some point in time, the attorney general will say yes or no. The U.S. Attorney's Office will return to court here and say, Judge, we do not have the authority or we have the authority. And that's when the public will know. But that initial request will be disclosed. It will be a request to examine the death penalty or will it initially be a request from, say, I don't know, Trini Ross, U.S. Attorney in, in Western District here in Buffalo. Will she actually say, I would like this to be a death penalty or will she just request that kind of review? She will make. A, she is required to send this case down for a death penalty review. The, she can send it down with a recommendation that the penalty be imposed. She can send it down with a recommendation that the penalty not be imposed. We won't know any of that. That's totally oh, internal within. We'll the know that, of that she has referred it, but but none of the interior of that will be visible. That's completely within the Department of Justice. Okay. And eventually, like I said, the court will be notified that the attorney general has said yes or the attorney general has said no. All right. Up next, Jay Moran talks with Harper Bishop, a community activist. Before that, though, Mark, I want to give you the last word. Mark Talley, again, lost his wife. Or, I'm sorry, his mother, Geraldine, in the shootings. You've been active in the community for a while. Uh, you said earlier that uh, that you're pleased that it's taking this step. Give me your overall reaction. Give me your hopes and your fears right now. As of right, uh, right now, my hope is just that uh, this process will continue and will ultimately uh, result in him getting either life in prison or the death penalty. But at this point, I try not to talk about him, think about him, constantly just call him a terrorist because I just refuse to have have this uh, terrorist have any emotional bond or stranglehold on me. And I basically just believe this, uh, this terrorist is... Basically, he's less than a dirt on my sneakers right now. He does not live in your head rent-free. Absolutely. Mark, no rent. Mark, thanks for being here. We'll be right back. Support for the WBFO News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York, an independent private foundation investing in improvements to community health with the goal of a healthy Central and Western New York where racial and socioeconomic equity are prioritized so all people can reach their full potential and achieve equitable health outcomes. Learn more at hfwcny.org. Support for the WBFO Mental Health Initiative is provided by the Patrick P. Lee Foundation, a private family foundation focused on two key investment areas, mental health and education. The Lee Foundation is committed to supporting a community that is well-informed about mental health, inclusive of individuals with mental illness, and served by high-quality, accessible mental health services. Learn more at lee.foundation. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. 
This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran, and joining me, Harper Bishop, a longtime advocate for housing justice here in the city of Buffalo. Harper, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jay. Uh, you had a chance, actually, to listen to uh, Mark Talley and uh, Tony Bruce there talk a little bit about this, uh, and you were responding throughout. What are your takeaways from the conversation we just heard? There's so many emotions, so many um, thoughts that were running through my head. Um, but I think the takeaways for me um, are really uh, that these are the first steps that action needs to be taken. Um, and the talk and the conversations that we're having, what the show has allowed people, everyday people to come on and say about their city is incredibly important. Uh, but without the action behind it, um, then where will we be, right? And, and what will happen after, um, as we know, the cameras have, have cleared and all those in our community who are looking to make progress and have for many years cited that policies have gotten to the, us to the place uh, that we are at today. What policies can we uh, look at and move forward uh, to create a more just, equitable uh, Buffalo? I want to get into those policies, obviously, and that's something you can really enlighten us on because we hear, you know, redlining. That's mm -hmm. tossed out. It's tossed out. It's tossed out. Redlining had a lot to do with the way the city is right now. Before we get into that, though, mm -hmm. just a little bit, you're somebody I can only picture has spent time on almost every city street. There aren't a lot of people that we can say that about in the city of Buffalo. You know the strengths. You see these neighborhoods. How hopeful are you that there can be the type of improvement that I think we all want to see and that has been highlighted here by the conditions that we're seeing on Jefferson Avenue right now with was many people call it food apartheid. Mm -hmm. What do you see inside those neighborhoods that say, yeah, this is what we're, this is where we can be if we make some changes. So I feel today at least incredibly hopeful. If you talk to me on 514 or the immediate math thereafter, I would say that it was hard for me to find the hope. I felt the despair, I felt the grief, I felt the anger of so many in our community that were responding to those moments. Uh, today we have folks like Mark Talley who just spoke so powerfully about the actions that he and others are taking, whether it's here in Buffalo or traveling to Washington, D.C., to testify and to talk to our lawmakers, policymakers, decision makers at the highest level about what needs to change here. And people have been very pointed in what they're seeing. As you've mentioned, food apartheid, the reason that people use this phrase and don't say food desert is because food deserts are uh, you know, natural occurrences. Food, food apartheid really highlights that these are policy decisions that have been made. Um, I think that people are pointing out neoliberalism and the idea that the quote free market is not col is not colorblind. It actually takes into account, um, particularly black folks who have been left out of the economy have been left out. That's why we have one tops to service many people on on the east side uh, of of Buffalo. Uh, and so what people are talking about in their solutions are that we have people who are first responders. We've seen people lining Jefferson. We've seen uh, community uh, groups and organizations and community-based organizations that have been flourishing and functioning for decades now get the, the attention they rightfully deserve 
black-led organizations, and we can name many that Certainly. are right there on Jefferson, who have taken the lead. Whereas food apartheid and that conversation were not taking place even a month and a half ago in a real way. It's been moved up the agenda so quickly. The African Heritage Food Co-op, the work that they're doing, the Fruit Belt commu community has said that they want that um, in their community for years. And now, and rightfully, are fundraising at the at the uh, scale that it always should have been able to uh, be fundraising at, and and be a place um, that people can come um, and have a, a, a self a self sufficient, self determined um, sort of community that like it was uh, decades ago. I was really interested in the way you described how capitalism, neoliberalism, neoliberalism. There we go. Mm -hmm. um, is not colorblind. We found that out, right? right? You are somebody who's spent over a decade now dealing with you know, housing justice issues here in the city of Buffalo. How stark, how over the top and obvious is are, are some of those situations? I mean, I mean mm -hmm. I, and, and, and if you can, offer examples of just how you have seen mm -hmm. racism make an impact on housing situations in the city of Buffalo. Sure, they're omnipresent. Uh, you can't talk about housing without talking about housing discrimination. Kianga Yamada Taylor, who uh, whose father is Dr. Henry Taylor, has written prolifically about uh, race for profit and what that means. When we talk to people, you've you've had Denise Barr, a community leader, on here already. She speaks very eloquently about. Redlining is not a thing of the past. People <laughs> try to say that that's a practice that is long gone. It's it's yesteryear. It is not yesteryear. Um, it is omnipresent in housing in uh, black folks, particularly being able to. Um, buy and build generational wealth. That was the impetus for and the idea of founding the Fruit Belt Community Land Trust so that folks would be able to determine what it is that they wanted to see in terms of housing and to have and to make decisions based on uh, and, and have affordable housing uh, in perpetuity. If Shirley Chisholm says, you know, if they don't give you a seat at the table, <laughs> bring your own chair. Right. Instead, the Fruit Belt Community Land Trust said, we're going to build our own table. <laughs> we right. can virtually you know, build an insulated and insular, um, you know, community in which we have a community land trust in which we own both the land underneath and the housing above to re retain it uh, for generational wealth building. If you look on uh, the west side and what is happening, lead uh, in homes, is, and, and this is all over, but particularly right. the, where I've worked on the west side, um, astronomical. I had a former foster daughter who's lead, um, you know, was was in a very unhealthy, um, you know, sort. And she had impacts of lead poisoning? Yeah, well, she had, she did. And um if five or below is a safe zone, her numbers were over 20 when she came to us and has been dealing with that ever since. Um, Erie County does um, track people and they've been tracking individuals. Once you get into the system, they do a good job of tracking that. But it's ha that you have to be tested and all those things, and you have to have, you know, steady, um, you know, ability to be tested, and then you have to have landlords that are taking responsibility um, for, um, you know, cleaning up lead for um, the house, the housing stock as it is, um, and that oftentimes doesn't happen. 
We have a lot of absentee landlords. They do not live in Buffalo. They are not taking uh, responsibility for that. Uh, so when we talk about housing stock, when we talk about even ownership and who owns uh, housing, that is leaving out Black, Latinx, other communities of color uh, to a great degree, to a great extent. And of course, we know the GI Bill, how it evolved and um, how white ownership was obviously um, able to assist white ownership uh, at a disproportionate amount. A lot of people then moved out to the suburbs. And of course, we have the urban core being left where people of color had to start with banks not giving them. Uh, is that better now? Money. Is it better now, though, uh, with banks? Are banks better at that? Because redlining, and, and yep. I see you grit your teeth as you've already <laughs> answered that. But, it, you know, because the redlining was really about banks and their lending practices. Yep. Is it better now? Are they doing enough? and what could be done, I guess, maybe to, to make more capital available in these neighborhoods? That's a good question. So there's uh, banks of uh, Evans Bank just recently in recent history was tagged with um, being uh, a, a lender that was not giving to and, and providing mortgages to uh, community members um, in, in black and brown communities. So that's recent history. They were held accountable. They're doing better now, but because there was accountability. Right. I just uh, tuned into the Common Council hearing this past week, and uh, the talk was around around Chase putting uh, ATM right in front of the Meriwether Library, even though they had not made a commitment to African-American and black identifying people for many years, right? And there were people, and Council President Pridgen said, right down the road who have branches or have been in the community for a long time. So uh, what we see, unfortunately, in in the uh, wake of this tragedy is you see, again, banks uh, and other lenders and people who were never invested in the black community and in black Buffalo and Jefferson in particularly now taking advantage of a moment uh, for profit. And that's what corporations do. And it leads back to my point right, around capitalism, right. neoliberalism, and how people will morph and change and uh, as Mark was talking about, the efficiency of white supremacy <laughs> is that you will continue. We have disaster capitalism. This is an example of that. Um, this is a terrorist uh, capitalist example of people taking advantage, corporations morphing to fit the moment, and that's unacceptable. We're talking with Harper Bishop this morning on Buffalo What's Next. Uh, Harper, for a long time with a Push Buffalo, now uh, uh, segueing away from the, the organization at this time, but uh, still obviously very much uh, committed to uh, uh, housing justice here in the city of Buffalo. Uh, the, what is the capital availability? If you're uh, somebody who grows up on Jefferson or uh, off of Jefferson, perhaps in uh, you know East Utica or wherever the case may be, mm -hmm. what are the possibilities for somebody, compare their possibilities of getting capital to either buy a house or improve a home compared to somebody who lives in a white suburb? Yeah, well, we know that there, those um, chances and those differences are very stark. Um, that there are numbers, and um, I won't, I won't quote them, but I think you know it's it's four to five times, you know, what a a white person will be able to. Um, Access as compared to uh, a black household, um, and uh, in, in the suburbs. I mean, I, I always tell people if they want to see a, an example of leakage, uh, all they have to do at 5 p.m. is go to the 33, and they will watch 
you know, they will watch car after car exit the city of Buffalo and retreat back to white suburbs uh, or predominantly white suburbs. And so all of those jobs that otherwise could be held by city residents and primarily, as we know, uh, Buffalo has been a predominantly uh, uh, black, uh, you know, POC-led organize-led uh, city, right. and and uh, um, those those statistics are there uh, since early 2000s. And so all the jobs that would be you know given to um, folks of color are not being given to folks of color. They're actually highly educated people who are coming into, and it's been made um, very clear. Um, the Kensington Expressway. I mean, I think I heard it called recently uh, the biggest homage to white supremacy in the city of Buffalo uh, because it cuts through the black neighborhood on purpose, intentionally taking power from them and, um, you know, driving that through as a way for people from the suburbs to get in for jobs and job creation. So I think that people feel that there are not opportunities, there are not living wage jobs, there are not uh, the things that need to be put in place. Of course, we have the Northland Workforce Center. I know, you know, PUSH obviously is working on a sustainable, uh, a sustainable uh, workforce uh, development center on the west side as well, but those need to be more prolific, there need to be more jobs available, they need to be good, family sustaining wages, um, and we can't continue to give our public dollars to projects like Tesla that promise hundreds and thousands of jobs, don't deliver, and then there's no clawbacks to get our public dollars back. And so people have been complaining about this for a very long time, but that's a right complaint. It's, a, it's, it's actually a systemic issue that needs to be addressed and who is getting those jobs, where are they being placed, uh, et cetera. And we know that the architecture of the city has been to really allow and prioritize um, white folks that are highly educated um, to first and foremost uh, get those jobs. When I used to work in the Fruit Belt, uh, I would canvas regularly all of those streets. And of course, that's just a few blocks away from the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus. And I never met one person who said they had a job on the medical campus. Uh, and Even we, though you're within easy walking distance. Of oh, campus. yeah. Right. Easy. Yeah. And so the e- economic development and just the idea of who gets the jobs, who pri- who is prioritized. Um, never one person said to me, I'm even, you know, I'm working as a nurse there or um, and again, that could be that I miss some people and they're, you know, right. I didn't I didn't talk to every single person. But if you think generally canvassing a neighborhood over and over, I would come about um, speaking to someone who had some position on the medical corridor. I, I had a chance uh, to meet you uh, at the press event a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. over on uh, Carlton Street uh, where Alex Wright was there uh, talking about the African Heritage Food Co-op. Can you picture that neighborhood with that co-op functioning at the level that, that um, Alex is talking about and what that mm-hmm. would mean for that, for that neighborhood and how it might be a model for other neighborhoods in the city? So that is exactly how we envisioned it when we were creating the Community Land Trust, was to think that uh, what we call it is a local living economy. And so what has happened at a meta level is that there's been extraction of resources, natural resources, and exploitation of workers. And the idea is to create a regenerative economy in which you have well-being and people and functionality really being centered. In this instance, the idea was to own the land and to petition the city that there's 200 lots in that uh, particular neighborhood alone. That means that uh, we won 50 of them 
so a quarter of the lots. The idea was to use the land as a building block to then create the community that previously existed. People talk all the time about the fruit trees and the grocery stores, and that it was a self-contained neighborhood, just like the one I grew up in East Aurora, that I could walk to anything that I needed and have what I needed right there. The Fruit Belt, there's no reason why that could not happen. There's uh, social life happening, there's churches, there's community centers, the Moot Center uh, hosts senior activities. And then the idea is that you would build you know, gardens that could be self-sufficient during COVID-19. We saw how the supply chain breakdown really was difficult and uh, you know how, why we need uh, resiliency in our food systems. And then a grocery store, which would provide for the neighborhood the food uh, right that it needs right there, black ownership, cooperative ownership, and then paying living wage jobs to people in the neighborhood so that they are employed. As you talked about, we haven't had jobs for people in the community, and this is also a job generator, uh, right? And so it's the best and and version of what the Fruit Belt hopes you know would be. And for us, as you've said, much like we don't think that the Green Development Zone uh, on the west side is is like you know decision making for everybody. It's one example of what can be modeled, and that's kind of the old growth. And the fruit belt is a new growth of showing an example of a East Buffalo community that can do exactly the same thing. So the grocery store is not made to feed all of East Buffalo. It's right. to say, you know, Fruit Belt and Cold Spring and Hamlin Park. Every neighborhood should have this. So should. You know, disgustingly, a terrorist attack happened. There are still grocers online where people can go and walk to and be in community. Uh, Harper, we heard uh, Mark Tal, you and I were sitting here in this studio listening to Mark and uh, Tony Bruce and Dave Debo talking in the other studio. And this is our, we're down to about two minutes here. So uh, I thought about this. You heard Mark talk, I thought, with uh, a, a, a remarkable amount of optimism. Mm-hmm. Is what I got from him. This is a, a man who just lost his mother in uh, this this May Fourteenth shooting. Mm-hmm. Talking about the community groups he's seeing on Jefferson Avenue. You've been in this now for over a decade. Mm-hmm. When it comes to housing justice, and you've seen a few political ebbs and flows. You know the elections here, things get highlighted, mm-hmm. things go to the wayside. Any different sense of hope, of optimism for you, knowing the the problems that that still exist. Yeah, you know, I, I was incredibly impressed by Mark and the fortitude and uh, just determination and the power of hope that he brought uh, really heartened me. Um, and as you've said, if he, he can do that in the face of all of this and losing his mother, um, it, it absolutely today <laughs> gave me uh, a different perspective and a, a, a more hopeful one. Um, I am heartened and hopeful because I see on a daily basis I get to work with the doers in our city, the people who are committed to when things times tough to uh, really uh, hunkering down and doing the good work and saying that we need more of it. We need more people. And I think there's more people that are coming into the movement because of this moment. And we welcome all of them with open arms. Uh, And so what I do see is I see a strategy, a political strategy developing of individuals who want to run for office. They're saying that the status quo is no longer okay. If our elected officials can't get it done now, they're never going to get it 
done and there needs to be a new political era is what I'm hearing in the neighborhoods. I'm also seeing people power that people are being relentless in going to their elected officials and making them understand that you serve us, not vice versa. Uh, And I see people responding both short term and long term. And that long term strategy is going to see our city through. Harper Bishop, uh, appreciate uh, your time, your perspective, and I got a feeling you've got a few more things we need to know about uh, and we want to hear about. Maybe we'll talk about that off the air, but uh, thanks for joining us today on uh, Buffalo What's Next. Thanks again for having me. Harper Bishop, of course, he deals in housing justice, longtime member of Push Buffalo. He was our guest to finish up this hour. Previously, we heard from uh, Mark Talley and Tony Bruce, along with uh, Dave Debo, talking about uh, the charges being leveled on a federal level here against uh, the accused shooter of the uh, 10 black people at the tops on Jefferson Avenue. This has been Buffalo What's Next. We'll be back with you, of course, right here, 10 o'clock in the morning on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. The time is 11 o'clock.